0: Welcome to Season 2 of American Political History, The Second Wave, Banishment. Williams was back in court, this time for objections over the required day of humiliation. That since the Bay's charter allowed for the state to order this, the charter was clearly irrevocably broken and should be returned to the king to be fixed. The Bay saw this as showing contempt for their authority. They ruled that Williams was out of order and creating disunity within the Commonwealth, and that he should be shown admonition into conformity. Bay leaders would make personal visits to Williams' residence. And Williams would yield again, for political reasons this time, knowing that furthering this issue in the middle of tensions with England was dangerous, writing later that, "'Councils of flesh and blood had curtailed my views, and worldly politics had at last prevailed.'" Williams did stop speaking about the charter issues, but he just couldn't help himself, and in short order, he was protesting against the new Oath of Fidelity instituted by the Bay authorities. The Bay had ordered that everyone swear an oath to the Bay authorities, blatantly leaving out the King of England in this oath. Cotton Mather, a respected leader of the Puritans, would argue in court that the oath was just to prevent England from dictating to the Puritans' churches in New England but the state also banished anyone that refused this oath twice. Williams objected to the oath on two issues. First, he objected that because the state was requiring an oath including all of the most corrupt, forcing degenerate people to swear an oath before God forced them to take God's name in vain. This profaned God by creating sin, which violated one of God's fundamental commandments. And because to do this, it required a vote of the general court, who represented the community at large in New England, that meant that everyone was involved in the sin of oath-breaking. Second, he argued that an oath was part of God's worship, that Christ worked in oaths and covenants, swearing an oath was a spiritual and serious act, representing striving after God, seeking of God, submission to God. An oath linked God with the swear, yet this oath, an oath before God to commit a worldly act, instead linked the state and its subjects, requiring men and women to swear fealty to the state to pledge to God for this earthly purpose. This act equated an earthly corrupt kingdom with that of God's holy kingdom. This too took the Lord's name in vain. It trivialized God, and worse yet, by associating a human kingdom with God's kingdom, it reeked of human pride, and pride too was a sin. Williams began to protest this oath. The magistrates would once again summon him. But this time, Williams' argument began to resonate throughout the Commonwealth, forcing the court to instead order a stopping of the administration of these oaths. In the debate at court over the oath, William used this to his political advantage to push on other issues. The issue of forced tithes and giving tax money to ministers. No one should be bound to maintain a worship against his consent. The state should concern itself with only the world. It should punish only acts of a person against a person. The state is profane to establish itself within the first table of commandments covering man's relationship with God. On these issues, too, he found resonance within the commonwealth, and the Church of Salem made him formally their church leader. This was done even though the magistrates had advised the Church of Salem not to proceed with promoting him. Advice from the clergy of the commonwealth was expected to be taken. When Salem proceeded over the advice of the magistrates, they took great offense to this. It was one thing, in their view, for an individual to have struggles against the commonwealth. They just needed to be brought back into the flock. But it was quite another for a community to reject the advice of the church elders within the commonwealth itself. The magistrates of the bay would start to use their societal pressure against Salem. In 1635, Williams would face individual church leader after church leader preaching attacks on this objection against the bay. Having lower-ranking church leaders start to openly attack you was a devastating signal that the magistrates of the commonwealth had approved your admonishment. Williams defended himself by first saying that magistrates are endowed by God with the necessary skills to ensure civility, peace, and order. Williams would further echo the sentiments that would be involved in the English Civil War, that no man may be punished for his thoughts, or his freedom to speak his thoughts. Much debate of William's arguments ensued within the Assembly of the Justices of the Peace. But politics intervened in this debate. All of the magistrates unanimously judged Williams to be erroneous and very dangerous to the Commonwealth, using his support with both the Justices of the Peace and Salem's officials as evidence of his true danger to the Commonwealth's unity. Magistrates would bury Williams by bringing up past offences, which he had had to withdraw and apologize for. They attacked Williams' treatise that said that Indians should have the legal right to the land of the bay. He would be openly mocked in court. Should we just give back our charter to the king and return home? What are you asking of us here? The magistrates now declared that Williams had shown his obstinacy. Maintaining such positions, and therefore should be removed from the commonwealth. The magistrates also condemned the Church of Salem for appointing him to office within the church. And the magistrates didn't state the punishment for Salem yet. They just held a future punishment over their heads, which would be solely based on their penance and conformity within the rulings of the court. This was meant to sever Williams from his allies in Salem because Salem would get a soft hand if they cooperated with the magistrates. If they continued to support Williams, they would receive the harshest of punishments possible. Then both Salem and Williams were given time to satisfy the court's rulings, and to perform the expected public recanting in conformity with the will of the commonwealth. Salem believed that the court had overreached its position. They ignored the ruling. Williams planned on forcing the magistrates to again retreat on a subject. He would do this by trying to convince clergy outside of Salem that the magistrates had behaved abominably, and set a dangerous precedent for the commonwealth itself, by condemning all within the town of Salem for the actions of the church. Williams addressed letters to each of the magistrates' congregations. With typical custom, he expected them to be read aloud to the whole church's congregation. These letters got received by church officials loyal to each of those magistrates. Not one letter got read to a congregation. Then Williams got sick, and Cotton Mathers would publicly gloat, that this was a sign that Williams was in the wrong, as God has decided to take his voice away rather than let him blasphemy further. The Commonwealth's other churches then wrote to Salem's church to persuade them to capitulate. Those from Salem now had to respond to questions from anyone they had dealings with from outside of Salem about, why was Salem trying to splinter the colony? Did they have such convictions in Williams, someone that has had to recant multiple times? And did they have such conviction over the learned scholars of Cotton Mathers and Thomas Hooker? What good to Salem could possibly come of this fight? In the fall, the general court met again. Salem was there with a delegation for a full-throated debate on the issues, but the magistrates had no intention of debating anything with them. The magistrates refused to even sit them in the assembly. The magistrates quickly made clear that they would be disciplining, not just Williams, but all that stood with him. If Salem repented, it could have its land that it sought to expand with. If it did not repent, then all of Salem would be punished for their wayward church leaders. They were using the social weight of group punishment upon Salem. The Church of Salem had already started to bend to these societal pressures of the magistrates, but with these punishments in front of the public, they did consider capitulation. Williams would then inform Salem that he would be no longer communicating with the magistrates in the bay and that the Church of Salem should follow his example. This stark demand pushed the Church of Salem back into the folds of the bay. They capitulated to the magistrates over all issues at hand. Now Williams awaited the court alone without allies. The court would open the meeting by reading Romans 16 verse 17. Unintentionally ironic because the Church of England used the same passage for the trials against Puritans in England. I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those that cause divisions and put an obstacle in the way that are contrary to the teachings you have learned. Keep away from them. The magistrates considered themselves very generous in this case. They had given Williams every opportunity to recant, including offer him learned clergy that would show him his error. In response, Williams publicly justified all of his previous works and opinions. The magistrates offered William another month to think it over and recant. Williams declined. Thomas Hooker would prosecute Williams for punishment. The guilt of Williams' crimes was never even debated in that court. Both men could quote scripture from memory, interpret it, debate it. Both were trained in debate in England's universities. But Hooker had politics on his side. All remaining accounts are of allies of Hooker, who said that Williams was brought to speechlessness by Hooker's debate that Williams fell silent rather than continue to speak, lest he be further embarrassed. For the magistrates, all that was in question was whether Williams would recant, reform, and submit to the authority of the Commonwealth. He had not, and would not. Williams was sentenced to banishment from the Commonwealth. Williams was personally taken aback, and this shock and bitterness would last his lifetime. He never fully expected to be banished from the Commonwealth. This issue of the role of state within religion and the role of religion within state would be debated for generations up until the current moment in American history. The question has always been where to draw the line in that spectrum. The Puritan's argument from Thomas Hooker was that the state was the nursing father of the church, and this view would rule the day in Massachusetts Bay. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History, If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating and share this show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again. Until next time.